0: Hello, hi, I hope you are well, I hope you are good, and welcome to the 10th episode of African Phone. If this is the first time you're with African Film, African Film is a space where we explore African cinema through film recommendations as well as pertinent conversations with practitioners working within the field. So usually we start with the film recommendation and then we get to the conversation. And for today's film recommendation, whew, this is probably the most unsettling, unnerving, unnerving. This is probably the most unnerving film, South African film, I think I've ever watched. And it is called A Good Report. Written and directed by Jamil X. T of good report stands as one of the few films in south african cinematic history to ever be banned from screening even though that ban was eventually lifted we as the audience experience the film through the lens and through the point of view of a high school teacher played by motusi so for my premise i'm going to actually give you the scenario that kind of leads us into the film from the high school teacher's perspective so imagine this you are a high school teacher who has recently transferred schools across provinces. So let's say you were based within KZN and now you are within the Eastern Cape. So today is the first day that you're within this new schooling environment in a province and town that you don't know and that you are not known. And essentially the principal now introduces you to all of the other teachers as well as introduces you to the grade of students that you're going to be teaching. And they welcome you with this lovely song so you then get to understand a little bit of about the school. So after you've gotten through your orientation period, that night you decide to go to one of the local bars to unwind when one of the young women there starts flirting with you and you guys headed off and decide to spend the night. The next day, as you arrive to class to teach your first lesson, right there in the middle of the classroom is that young woman you literally just spent the night with. But she's not a young woman, she's a 16 year old girl, and she's in your class. And this is the situation that we're brought into, and it spirals from there. Tango is an ever evolving dance form. It relies heavily on improvisation. Yay, chill this, my chin. The thing with um your tango I say, is um hey, Lisa, He leads with strength.
1: Give us a chew
0: and he leads with
1: passion. Hey, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> He's a hunter. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Of Good Report is a unique psychological thriller in that it deprives us of ever hearing the main character speak, despite us always being within their point of view and or perspective. So literally throughout the entire film, we never actually hear Motusi say a word. I think the most we ever do is hear him laugh. But besides that, he doesn't actually have a piece of dialogue. But all the other characters do talk and do have pieces of dialogue, whether it's a 16 year old girl who's played by Pachinola Tsuma, or literally anyone else in the film, they all have dialogue but the main character who we see the film through his eyes For me, of good report is a really good film. It's a brilliant film, but you have to be—you have to mentally prepare yourself for it. One, but also it is not a family-friendly film. I am going to say that it genuinely feels like the start of a series of films in which Rebecca explores the male psyche, the black male psyche, but specifically the black men who are viewed within a positive standing, but within the phrase of society and are slightly unhinged. Uh, I shouldn't—I shouldn't say slightly unhinged, but. He's unapologetic about exploring the more carnal sides of the black male psyche of men who live within these spaces, who may not actually be protagonists within their story, whether it's Mutusi's character, who is a teacher that comes of good report, or a real life figure who has become a folk legend like John Kipper, and so the winter to my skin, and even Knuckle City's championship boxer. Kubeka's central characters within these films are respected black men within their community but they're but these communities are within the phrase of society and all three of these films in some way kind of peel back that psyche to kind of explore more of the carnal parts of these figures and the psychological traumas or the psychological makeup that informs them as they go about their day-to-day life or as they go about living. A good report kind of feels like the genesis of that and the one which dives furthest into it because we are stuck within this one perspective and this one point of view. If you want to watch this film, this film is available on Showmax. And now on to our conversation. This week's episode, I believe with our film advocacy episode, is probably one of our most essential lessons for filmmakers, whether aspiring or working, as we dive into the business of filmmaking from a sales and distribution perspective. So with us, we have sales and distribution agent Pascal Schmitz of AAA Entertainment. And within the conversation, we speak about the life cycle of a film, as well as the general framework, and structures that a film has to go through once it has actually been produced in terms of being able to make money and all the different avenues that that happens and all the thought patterns that should go into a film when you're trying to make it accessible or appealing to a sales and distribution agent to be able to take it on. So if this is something which interests you, do stick around for the conversation. I do believe it is one of our most educational and insightful thus far. Thank you for listening. We have made it to our 10th episode of African Film. And I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to African Film. I'm very excited about today's guest because I'm not sure if he knows it, but this guy was actually one of if not the first step that I had into the industry. Um, but actually, I believe it was huh? one of the first independent steps I had into the industry. So <laughs> essentially, when I was in varsity, I had a very big anxiety about going into the film industry. And when I was in like second year, I was like, I feel like I don't know what's going on. So I started researching like on a lot of workshops that I used, that I would go to. And then at like 18, I started going to like these ATFT workshops, um, like the AFM workshops. And then I got, went into it into the third year with the, uh, you guys had like a lot of different workshops for like a lot of the different film festivals so I'd go to those workshops mm. and I'd like ask questions and I'd also just listen to what was going on at the film industry and through that I actually got my first internship because I connected with John Falnick at Duprenti that was my first internship but like mm. my first wow. understanding of the actual industry was because I'd researched about ATFT and I started going to those workshops which you guys would host so my oh, first wow. <laughs> yeah my my entry into the industry as from an independent perspective was through your guys' initiative
1: that's fantastic well i mean cheat i'm i'm so glad to hear that it was worth the uh the time and effort we we put in at the time you know we never really got a lot of feedback so it's difficult to gauge when you do these things if it's having an effect if it's giving people anything and you know and yeah what the outcome is so it's so wonderful to hear that somebody got something out of it like that you know really i'm so thanks for sharing that man Yes, uh, but we actually I have,
0: actually have not introduced you, but I just wanted to give you that story. But yeah, so um, our guest today is, this man has done a lot. He is a sales agent. He is, he's been a sales agent. He's been a film producer. He is one of the heads of one of South Africa's primary distributors called AAA Entertainment, AA Entertainment. And he will then fill in the blanks
1: of everything I have missed. It is Pascal Schmitz. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me here on Africa. And I really really appreciate it and what a wonderful introduction truly that you've made um, especially regarding the workshops i have to say that's something i'm very passionate about i'm very passionate about sharing the knowledge we gain as we gain it and in fact i have a very unique perspective i think on that in that as i gain insight into something i'm compelled to share it immediately and i think that's you know probably something that more of us should be doing and that people don't realize has propelled us forward ironically you know people often think that once you gain knowledge or insight and you should hold it back to give yourself a competitive advantage but i believe very much in this sort of ubuntu type philosophy and um, where you know you're sharing with the community and through it you get back immediately actually from that community number one uh, from individuals in that community but also you know through a higher power i mean i believe i do believe in god and and I do believe that it comes back or whether you believe in karma or the universe or whatever your, your belief system is it does come back in the end you know that's been pretty much our approach to things and we started AAA Entertainment in uh, 2014 and it was because of what we were doing at, a- at the ATFT which was a non-profit uh, organizational company in which we assisted the DTI used their, their sort of um, sector specific assistance schemes to take producers it was exclusively black producers and filmmakers that we were targeting because we felt they lacked historically a certain social capital which is key in our industry. You probably have figured that out by now. You know, it's it's a lot about who you know versus what you know. And so we tried to balance the scales of social capital amongst black filmmakers and uh, in doing so we gave up like three to four years of our life you know of producing and, and making film because you know it started as, a, as an idea as these things do and, and it just it just mushrooms and exploded into, into a full time job really and so we enjoyed it it was thoroughly kind of rewarding but at the same time we eventually decided we got to get back into our careers again and so by 2016 we, were, we started winding things down, we'd taken a total of a hundred plus companies to these markets. We'd gone to about forty odd markets by that time and festivals. And I think that that era, you know, and the, the likes of Deprinta, Gambit Films, a lot of companies that are now making Netflix originals and and really thriving. You know, I think was a lot through the communities that we created. Number one, because it's you know it created a bunch of people that kind of helped each other and leveraged each other's relationships, but also the knowledge that was gained because by taking groups to these markets we had an advantage to get more out of those markets and festivals if you just show up at a film festival nobody knows you you know you're hustling it's hard to find connections um, and you're usually sitting in the back of the room you know listening to people talk on some panel and with no access to them but when you show up with 20 people you know we used to make an impact people used to go oh the South Africans here have you seen the South Africans you know have you seen these guys because they're everywhere you know and South Africans are very social Obviously, you know, there is that and not, you know, that advantage that South Africans, I think, have by default in that they're very social, they're good dancers, you know what I mean? They they get a party going, and, and that helped certainly create a lot of social capital because that's, uh, you know, a big part of these festivals and markets. But by sort of 2014, we had come to the conclusion, uh, my business partner and I, Manzek and I had come to the conclusion that everybody was really looking for a partnership at these festivals in the shape of a sales agent or a distributor to take on their project and find markets for it get sales projections get pre-sales these are sort of the you know the the items and the tools and prerequisites that you need for financing right so distribution is the key to financing, Distribution and sales unlocks the money. If you have pre-sales or solid sales predictions from a reputable company, you can go to a bank or to an investor and get money because you can show that there is a market for your film. And that's what investors are still in an industry that is based on these things. Risk aversion, proof of market, proof of concept. These are things that investors are looking for. And that usually takes the form of distribution and sales partnership in our industry. And we realize, well, there's nobody really from South Africa doing that role right we're all looking for sales agents in London in Paris in Los Angeles in New York usually um, and pitching them these projects and we saw that there was a gap in the market and so we founded and established AAA Entertainment as a sales company and the first three four years were incredibly difficult you know we had to subsidize the company with other income that we were making of productions and other things that we were doing and eventually we kind of hit the critical mass, as it usually is with the companies. Five years is usually what it takes to break even. And anybody that starts a company should know that. Only after five years can you start really making profits. And that's a challenge for a lot of independent uh, filmmakers and producers, I think, or entrepreneurs in South Africa, you know, is how do you survive for five years? But anyway, we we broke through that mark and we'd started working with Netflix a lot from about twenty. 15 onwards. And so, you know, we found a niche and we established ourselves as a sort of boutique sales company that specializes in black content, movies and television. That was a very small market in 2014 and 2015. It was incredibly niche. It was hard to find buyers. And that has really changed in the last year to year and a half. In the last 18 months, there's been an explosion internationally in the demand for black content, I would say. And not only inf- to give, um, yeah. just as a, but to
0: give scope in terms of, cause you are mentioning black, but to give scope, it's not just black South African, because I know you guys have also dealt with a lot of that. No, no,
1: absolutely. Uh, they call it yeah. in Hollywood, they call it diversity, right? Diversity is basically BEE in Hollywood. Okay. And so what it means, <laughs> cause it's both in front of camera and behind the camera. Initially, it was like, you know, get a black character in the cast. This is all too white. It's all white characters. Um, And then it progressed to like, yeah, it's actually better if there's more black characters than white characters. And then it was like, yeah, if they're all black, it's actually the best. And then it was like, oh, who's making the film? Who's directing the film? Who's behind the camera? Who's the cinematographer? Who's the producer? Who's the, you know, and now it's really like when we bring projects to the international market at a project stage, and um, we're being asked by the, you know, by big networks in America and by big companies, they're saying, who are the diverse people behind this project? In other words, who are the black people behind this? The decision makers, the owners of this thing, you know? Not just like yeah. a face you're putting up, but who's actually driving this? Who created this? Um, you know, who's going to benefit the most from this? And, and for us, that's very exciting. Really, because that was sort of what ATFT was all about, right? It was, it was about right, black empowerment. And that is happening now on a global scale. We call it GBEE, right? Global black economic (laughs)
0: environment. (laughs) But you can also see it um, when you're talking about like the diversity behind the scenes. If you're talking specifically with America, they recently released the new qualifications for the best picture, which has to have, um, you have to have specific markers of diversity behind the scenes from yourselves. And it's quite it's quite expansive. Thing says you have to have at least two out of four. I I really wish it was at least three out of four Mm. because I can see places where people can kind of can skirt around Mm. in terms of Mm. showing Mm. diversity without actually being diverse. We are seeing more and more stories and and actually just the way that the industry is going, moving within that direction. And even at the Durban format, the the one that happened this year, CAA was also talking about how America right now is also basically at a standstill um, production wise. Mm. And they're even looking a lot more towards Africa and the, the South Americas to kind of get more production because we are still kind of in production and we have all of these great resources
1: Absolutely. and great skills. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, it's it's a combination of that and what happened in COVID very interestingly is that, you know, in March all production stopped. So you had productions that had just finished and they were in post, lucky for them. You had productions that had finished a while back and were delivering and you had productions that got halted in the middle and then you had productions that were going to go into productions that could no longer go in. And what happened is progressively from March, and this is obviously, you know, what we experienced in the distribution space is that buyers were getting less and less options as every month went by, right? Because less and less productions were, were there and as things got delivered there was nothing coming behind them and so buyers are usually It's we call it a buyer's market so in general if you go to like a canned film market or a Mipcom television market you will find that the ratio is something like between 5 and 10 to 1 in terms of sellers that want to sell content and buyers that want to buy content so there's t- almost 10 times as much content for sale as there are buyers that can buy content right we are making always yeah more glo- the world it's it it's always making more content than there is capacity to buy and so buyers are really in the pound seat and they can cherry pick what they want right and they usually pick from yeah. the top down so big productions made by you know very established showrunners or directors with big talent in it is obviously where they pick and then with the rest of their budget they come down the pyramid but they'll stop at a certain level now That stuff at the top kind of stopped entirely. And by April, May, there was nothing, there were no cherries left to pick. And so the buyers by force kind of started coming down the ranks and started uh, moving into buying stuff from other territories they normally wouldn't. And the great thing is that a lot of them, uh, to their surprise, discovered that the content that they were buying from England, Canada, Australia, South Africa, for example, if it's English language or or even non-English language, taking risks on some stuff that were subtitles. By the way, America three years ago wouldn't buy anything subtitled. Not a thing we had on our catalog. The moments got a subtitle, they would just pass. And now they were taking risks on the stuff because they had no choice and they found that their audiences were responding very well responding. to it. Yeah. So they're getting higher ratings suddenly you know what I mean on on a Canadian or South African or Brazilian show than they were getting on the American shows they were normally buying and this opened their eyes to the fact that there were more possibilities and the content is cheaper from other countries so the market has opened up progressively right I think the other thing speaking to your your point of uh, the requirements they're now putting in in terms of diversity in Hollywood it's an interesting thing I mean Hollywood is still a business is a business machine right it's a big big business it's driven obviously at its core by by the money that it makes, and um, and what's happened, I think, is that they've realised that audiences really want diversity. Audiences, the majority of audiences, especially the younger you go down the ranks, like millennials and going younger, um, those that generation doesn't cannot see a white world anymore. Like it, it just. It doesn't work for them, right? It's jarring. It's it's disturbing. It's kind of like it does not make sense. So they they need to see diversity in television and film. Well, but the guys um, making um, yeah, the guys making the stuff have been predominantly white for decades. And so how do you change that? Because if you leave it to its own devices, it will never change. And you see the same thing in South Africa. You know, the the, the white crews will bring on more white people because that's their social environment and there's a cultural kind of. Uh, divide and so if you leave it to its own devices it will not transform and change so they are putting these things in place to kind of force in a change to the structures of who's making and owning and creating the content because they know in the end they need the black content because it's what audiences want but it won't happen on its own right you can't have white people making black content that also is, yeah. is a no-go scenario right i mean chinese people will never let white people make Chinese content for them, right? It, it, it's not even a question there. But somehow in the West, we've had a history of, you know, white people making black content.
0: And it's not real. I don't think it's also just a thing of all white content is foreign. It's just that uh, I, I'm speaking specifically for myself because I am very much a millennial gen Z. It's, it's also just, <laughs> it's also just a, a thing of kind of like um, representation. Actually, as a script because I've been script writing since I was like, 10 i realized that it was only within this decade when i started seeing more people that i started framing that that i realized that i hadn't seen my type of black character on screen correct and the thing is like in terms of like blackness like this because there's currently a show called lovecraft country which is on hbo which the entire cast are all book nerds black book nerds Um, and it's centered around horror and the thing is i saw myself in each one of those characters because as a kid my parents told me that i used to read myself to sleep when i was four years old mm. and that's what i used to do i've been fascinated with with those types of um, with those types of characters but you don't see those that ty- you wouldn't see those types of characters so it's also got to do with just kind of seeing yourself so it resonates more with you mm-hmm. that type of diversity in terms of just feeling like you know these characters that these characters have a connection with you to something which has been missing within stories like they've been brilliant stories but sometimes in terms of that connection where in Instead of just watching it and saying, oh, this is magnificent, watching it and then feeling yourself in those specific roles. Because by and large, if we're even looking at American stuff, we've been seeing pre-2010s, the, the roles were very much either thug roles or there, there, there were specific archetypes. Absolutely. And even within South African film, there were specific archetypes in which there is still the stigma that South African black films are struggle for. Movies like Happiness is a four-letter word kind of gave... I think that representation of not of seeing us in specific different spaces where like for example the middle class could see characters that they knew and resonated with yeah. as opposed to just seeing that in white characters but then not being able to feel like you're represented within that
1: way. Absolutely. And I, and I think I would summarize it in you know if you look at happiness and what just being I would summarize it in saying seeing aspirational characters, right? Seeing characters that are black that are aspirational that you can aspire to be that are you know successful in 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 various facets but like you say are no longer stereotypes like they're the hood hood drug dealer you know what i mean or or whatever it used to be cast and that's clearly like a white creator worldview that creates those characters because you know if you go in america and you look from a purely white sort of suburban perspective a black person is a is a dangerous person that could be criminal that's kind of like the you know the category because you're not living next to anybody that's black or or engaging with anybody in the middle class but I think I think what you're explaining on the on the flip side of that coin as well is I think that young people that are white have seen themselves on the screen represented for a long time and I think they're more interested in understanding everybody else right now because they clearly can see that there is You know, a social issue along the lines of racial divide. If you look at like the Black Lives Matter movement, etc., and there's there's a desire to understand who the other people in the society are and how they tick and how to kind of cross that divide. And so they're just as interested in watching black characters in television and film right now, even though it's not about seeing themselves, right? It's the flip of that. It's about seeing the other and understanding the other and finding commonalities as well and, and having some kind of way to bridge that that gap right yeah
0: so what I want to kind of get into next is you guys are in the business of film correct in terms of sales and the life cycle of a film so what I want to understand from your perspective or just to kind of bridge it out is what is the life cycle of a film and I'm going to explain why I'm asking this for uh, for our viewers is mm. there tends to be this idea that box office is the end all and be all of, of and I think that specifically within the, within a the South African perspective, that is very much to our detriment mm. because we put too much pressure on making it big at the box office when a lot of the times we don't make necessarily box office entertainment forms. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the things which I learned is like, sometimes biopic films start at the box office but their real money comes in within like television rights because if something is, if, if there's a movie about Martin Luther King every Martin Luther King Day each year something's going to get licensed that movie's going to come into mm. that licensing and mm. that's where the that's where the money is for those types of films whereas like Big blockbusters like Black Panther will then have a good deal of their run at box office, but still live within television and streaming. Right now, we have so many platforms. So, from a sales perspective, what is the life cycle of a
1: film? Okay, so it's it's a complex it's a complex thing to unpack, but. Basically, I would say that you need to look at it like a pyramid again. At the top of the pyramid of the six studios, and that would be your Universal, Paramount, Disney, Fox, Sony, and the one that I'm missing. And And so the six studios are in a league of their own. Okay, just to understand within distribution and sales. So the six studios operate on a different kind of paradigm than everybody else does. They self-distribute across the world. In other words, when they take on a film in whatever form whether it's from development, whether it's developed internally and by the way, most new films that studios do come through a producer that gets a deal with a production company that's got a deal with a studio and that's how these things climb up the ranks to studio level. And Studio distribution is still the apex in this game but a studio is the only one that has the ability to take a film and drop it on 20,000 screens worldwide and then from that box office theatrical release executes existing deals tv deals they have with all these television networks that have to buy so a studio does a deal with a television network and they have to buy everything the studio makes whether it's great or crap whether it it did a billion dollars at the box office or it tanked it doesn't matter They have a contract and they have to buy everything the studio makes. So it's basically shoved down their throat. And they're the only ones that can do that. They are not beholden to the buyers. The buyers are beholden to them. Okay, so they're the only guys in the game where the seller has the say, so to say. And they're not selling as much as they are executing contracts and saying, right, here's our next film, pay, here's the invoice. Okay, now, yeah, yeah. so just understand that the only ones that can do that and and why it's important to understand that I think as well is because a lot of people we encounter filmmakers compare their film they want to make to some kind of successful studio film, right? And they say, look at the success of this film, it has the same genre, the same storyline, it's like this film. But the moment that film had a studio Logo up front, Universal, Sony, whatever it was, okay? The moment you see that, you must know that it's in a different realm, it's in that realm. And that the distribution is the key to the success of the film. You know, unless you take your film and can manage to get a producer that can pitch it to a production company that's got an output deal with the studio and the studio greenlights it, you're not going to follow the same trajectory as a studio movie. Right. You're yeah. gonna you're gonna fall into the next category when we go down the pyramid, which is the mini majors would be the next guys, and that's like your Lions Gate and you know, your Canal Plus Studios and the sort of like smaller studios that do not have that distribution outlet and that sell films, but they've got great partnerships all over the world. So like a Lionsgate will basically be doing a release in America and then they'll sell it to a French distributor and they'll sell it to a German distributor up front so they know when they finish the film they already know 60% of the revenue they're going to make is pre-sold and then they see how the film does and who else wants to buy it around the world that's like the next type of system right and that's still like theatrical and then uh, nowadays it's, it's it's VOD kind of next and then pay TV free to air you know DVD and down the ranks like that so that's like the mini-majors. Now, all of these systems, studio and mini-majors, basically still work off the golden standard of theatrical. And why box office and theatrical is still considered that benchmark is because it is where the value of the film is really determined. So when you look at how studios break down the sales cycle of a film, they base it on the theatrical. If it does exit the theatres then the TV deals are basically based on that. So the television deal will pay out in pro rata, in ratio with how much the film did at the box office. So the more it does at the box office, automatically the more the TV deal is worth. The more the VOD deal is worth. The higher the rental fee on TVOD... Uh, the, the you know etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So these things still start off with theatrical, and then the formulas work out from the theatrical what the other price points are, and so the sales cycle in that world is still very much determined by theatrical box office, right? Now, if you come further down from the mini majors, you're moving into the sales company arena. And you have the major sales company that are bankable. There's about 10 to 15 of them. Companies like Mr. Smith, they're usually based out of London or Los Angeles. But there's a bunch of uh, companies that are bankable. In other words, when they give you sales projections, you can go to a bank and a bank will actually fund against those projections because... They are guaranteed to be accurate within 80, 70, 80%. And then you have smaller sales company whose sales projections are not bankable. And we definitely fall into that category where you're basically taking a chance on risk, but they have experience in sales and they take a film out and it's very, again, relationship-based. So usually with us, if we have sold a film before to a buyer and we're coming with that directors next film then we might be able to get a pre-sale out of that buyer so it's usually based on track record so they will then actually give us a contract up front and say when the film is finished we will pay x for it and we can finance a film with that pre-sale if it's the the filmmaker's first time i can tell you now the chances of getting a pre-sale are like 0.01 percent okay so usually you're going on pure projections at that point and you're selling once the film is in post-production. You can start showing people something. That's when the sales cycle starts. So with studios, the sales are done up front. When the film goes into pre-production, they already know everything. The P&A budget, where it's going, how many screens it's releasing on, who's buying it. It's all done up front. The entire thing is already plotted out. With the mini-majors, you know, 60% of it is plotted up front. 40% once it comes out, depending on success. And then, you know, the sales companies, as you go down the pyramid, there's less and less upfront and more and more it's on risk. So in our, in our sort of arena as a, as a young sales company out of Africa, you know, it's like only once the film is made will we start knowing what people are going to really pay for it. Right. And we can estimate yeah. and our estimations are always based on success previously of the genre, you know, of the cast, of the director, whatever. But essentially, it's it's pure estimations of what we think this film could make. Let's just say most South Africans are going to fall into the the last category, right? So if you're making a film, you've got a sales agent on board, they can estimate what you're going to make with that film. You need to basically analyze and say, who is the market? So who is the audience for the film, right? And then who is the market for the film? Which is a different thing because you can have a film that gets... 5 million views on YouTube, but that's not money. That's just views, right? Ooh. So you can get a lot of free views unless you've got advertisers that are paying to to get those views. There's no revenue in that. So we look at where is the money for the film? What is the market? Who's going to pay for the film? Both like the audience and the buyers in the market. And then you've got to really... Do the work up front. And this is the most important part of working with a sales agent or with a distributor. But it's the producer's job to find out who is the market for my movie. Who is the end market that is going to consume this film, that is going to be excited to get it and is going to pay for it. Whether they pay for it by downloading it from iTunes or Google Play Store, you know, digitally, whether they're buying a DVD, whether they are subscribing to some kind of, pay TV or SVOD service like Netflix, Showmax, you know, iFlix, whatever it is, or whether they're going to watch it in a free environment and advertisers are going to pay to be there when that audience watches it. You know, you got to follow, basically follow the money. I'm sure you've heard the, 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 the <laughs> saying, follow the money, right? So follow yeah. the money. Where's the money going to be? And then reverse engineer it from there. And that's where you'll work out your sales cycle. And as you say, you'll then find out whether your film needs to go to cinema. Is it a requirement that it goes to cinema? And is it viable that it goes to cinema? You know what I mean? So not every film, like you say, can find a life in cinema. Because cinema is pure entertainment. Okay, like something to be very clear about. People do not go to the cinema to learn something. Nobody says on Friday night. I really want to learn something. (laughs) Let me go to the cinema. No. If you want to learn something, you will go join a webinar or go to an online university. When you go to the cinema, you want to get entertained. You want to see some director's latest work. You want to take a girl on a date. You want to take your family out for a family night out, you know? What is the reason people go to cinemas? They fall into these categories. And depending on the category they fall into, there are certain films they want to watch. It's date night. They want to watch a rom-com, you know, or a romantic drama. You know, it's it's yeah. a family night outing. They want to watch a family film. It's single guys want to go out and have fun. They're probably going to want to watch Marvel, DC, you know what I mean? Or Christopher Nolan's latest film. You know, that's it. If you You know what I mean? If you can't fall into any of those categories and you've got a film that's a heavy message and everybody dies at the end, it's probably not going to work on a wide scale in cinema. And then you need to come to terms with that and say, okay, where is it going to work? Where is my market? Where is my audience for this film that's going to pay for it? And then work backwards from there, right? And so usually we're going for cinema. After cinema, we're going for VOD or television. Those have become like... The same thing now, whether we're selling to Mnet or to Netflix, that's the same category in, in our world at this point in time. And then we're selling to free to air you know what I mean? And then we're putting it onto Amazon Prime and a whole bunch of AVOD services where there's revenue share, right? But we need to do sales where people will pay and license the film. And we need to then do revenue share where it goes onto platforms and it might find a big audience success somewhere on Amazon Prime um, and there's revenue derived out of that. Uh, but if we can't foresee enough of that revenue up front that it makes it worth our while to sell it because you know we live off the commission, um, then we're not going to engage with with that film, right? Um, and if we yeah. see potential, but it needs the film needs to really change in some way to be more accessible to a larger audience, be more commercial in a sense and the filmmakers are not willing to do that, and they have a very strong kind of sense of you know, the artistic value of the film, then they're going to go on risk. Like with any art, you're going to have to paint the painting and then put it up and see if anybody buys it. But if you want somebody to come up front and help you finance the film... You need to have a commercial proposition. Like you said, the business. We need to see the business. We are interested in the business, right? We we make money when the film makes money. We don't make money during production. We don't make money getting a budget for a film. That's not the game we're in. We're in the game of when the film is finished and it sells, we make money. If it doesn't, we don't. And we spend a lot of time for nothing. So, So, you know, after five years, you can imagine that we just... We made enough experience to kind of know when... We're going to waste our time and not get our time back in revenue and when we can make money and it's worth investing our time.
0: This season's interviews were primarily recorded remotely via Zoom during September and October 2020. The African Film Podcast is produced by Enraptured Odyssey, a media company based in Alberton, South Africa. To find out more on African film and Enraptured Odyssey, you can go to their website enraptured.africa and you can also follow their social pages at African film, that's A-F-R-I-Q-U-A-N film on social media sites for more fun film facts. So then at what point, because you have spoken a lot about relationships, relationships not just with other distributors, but also relationships with filmmakers. Mm. So within the actual making of the film, how does the relationship between a sales dis- distributor and a filmmaker form and at what point, I shouldn't say at what point is the best, but at what point does it make more sense to start that relationship?
1: The challenge up front to understand is that it is going to be very difficult for a first-time filmmaker. That I think we just have to pin that as a reality. You know, there's no getting around it until you've proven your value as a filmmaker, your artistic value, your talent, and your ability to bring everything together into something that also finds a market and makes money. It's going to be very difficult because it's all hypothetical. You can have the greatest concept in the world. Believe you me, we're not looking for concepts. We're not looking for a great idea, okay? There are just a billion great ideas, especially on this continent. People are extremely, incredibly creative. And there's just more great ideas than I think anywhere else in the world, right? But great ideas are only the seed. You know, we're looking for the, the fruit. We're in the game of selling the fruit. So when you come yeah. with a seed, that's great. But, you know, we know that there's a lot more to it than the seed. We need to, you know, know who's going to plant it, where you're going to plant it, who's going to water it, who's going to... look. You know what I mean? And we know that at the end, if all those things are done correctly... We will have a great product, a fruit that we can yield. But if you just have the seed, it's just, it's, it's just not enough, right? So I think that filmmakers must understand the challenge of being a first time filmmaker. You're really going to have to mitigate all the risks. And that's why I really recommend when you're making your first film and you've got a brilliant idea, you've got a story you want to tell that inspires you, whatever, put that one on the shelf for now. Okay. Look at what people are watching and what made a lot of money in the box office last year and what sold on Netflix and went it to number 10. Make a film like that. You know it's just like it's just like opening a fast food restaurant or anything. You might have a great idea about this crazy new exciting type of food, but if you want to start in the in the business, open a KFC, you know, or a Chicken Licken because it's going to work and it's going to make money. And then you can finance you're amazing, creative, new type of fast food. But if you're gonna start out with something new, USP, you know, unique selling point. People always tell us it's got this USP, but if you're gonna do something new that's never been done before, chances are you're not gonna get signed up with the sales edge. You know, we we wanna we wanna sign things that work and that have a track record and that we know for sure are gonna make money to add to that
0: or something which i trying to remember where i heard it from but there was a there was once a discussion in terms of pop films against like indie house films and where it is that each of these things kind of lie within the spectrum there was a conversation in terms of the fact that all of them have their place even though a lot of people may find films like let's say transformers really empty in terms of content a transformers is what makes is what actually pays the ground for about three to four Oscar films. So when a Transformer does really, really well, that profit is then invested into other riskier projects in case these don't actually yield their value. They can still be made for the artistic purpose. Absolutely.
1: I mean, I'll give you two examples people probably never think about. Uh, Schindler's List was the first film that Steven Spielberg made that was his own film that he wanted to make. That was Steven Spielberg's first own movie. Everything else he made before was brought to him by the studio or by other producers and it was not his movie and he directed it because it was going to be commercially said. Martin Scorsese, Hugo was the first film Martin Scorsese made. That was his movie he wanted to make. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. So, you know, go and do the research. So, and the, all these direct big Hollywood directors will tell you, they'll say, make five for them and then one for yourself. Right, you have to first establish a track record and make films that that have a market because you're swimming against the grain. If we're in sales and we're looking for rom coms and action, right? And by the way, that's exactly what we're looking for right now: rom coms and entertaining action, action comedy or straight up action. But every seven minutes, something must explode or someone gets hit in the face, right? It's action. (laughs) Every seven
0: minutes. Is that is that that an exact? um... That's the formula.
1: Every seven page one, and then every seven pages. Something must blow up. You know, that's what we're looking for. And if we're looking for that and you come with a very, you know, intense tragedy about a woman that loses all her children and and whatever it is, uh, and it's got a very deep message, that's great, but it's not what we're looking for. And so you're swimming against the stream. And we will put your, you know, your email and your project to the back of the list. And when somebody comes with a rom-com or an action film, they will go to the top of the list. That's just the reality, right? Um, yeah. And so, and but once you've made a rom-com uh, uh, and we've sold it and it's been successful um, and we follow up with another one and then you come and say, listen, here's the film I really want to make. Then you've, you've got, you've already got our attention. You've got our buyer's attention and we can then go and say, you know that director that made those two films you really loved it well for you? Well, they've got a drama. That they want to make and it's this story and that story. And they might say, well, he's a great director. Our audience love him. Let's try it out. And even then it's a risk, right? Because dramas um, and art house films are purely execution dependent, but people will take the risk on you because you've, um, you've made a success before that has benefited them. And so the easiest way to get your career going is to make something that is popular in the market and most of the market by the way and people often get confused because you ask your friends around you your colleagues and your peers if they'd like the film and they all say yes but they're all filmmakers and you already are in a creative industry that is very niche and does not represent the common denominator average person out there the average person is a bank teller, a plumber, a electrician, a call center operator—that's the average person out there. A doctor, and what do they want to watch? You know, and the, and these Funny, films, whether you like <laughs> yeah. them or not, they make a billion dollars. Because more people go and watch them. One of the things, one of the tips
0: which I was told in terms of when I'm writing a story is to pitch it to someone who has no idea about what film it and to see if they understand the story. And Correct. If they're part of the target market and they understand the story, then you're on the right track. If they don't Correct. understand the story, then... You then kind of need to re readjust, or if it's something which you're making specifically for that audience, it's very important. So, for example, when I'm doing um, when I'm when I want to do like Mzandi Magic Production, I usually go to like my dad or someone else who doesn't who isn't necessarily a film lover but and really enjoy stories and then i kind of just riff with them to kind of see what they enjoy what they click with what they don't click with and then i use that information to then inform the characters
1: yeah i, th- I think that's a good one however you'll often find that if you speak to somebody as a filmmaker they just get excited that a filmmaker is talking to them and they're, and they and they'll get into whatever story you pitch them you know ultimately, the numbers don't lie. The numbers, the truth is in the numbers, you know? If something yeah. went top 10 on Netflix, if you look at net, just watch every day the top 10 on Netflix. There you go. If you, if you log in once a day and look what the top... Because Netflix never used to give that data out, right? And I think it's incredibly useful right now for filmmakers to have that tool. is to go into Netflix and look at the top 10. And whatever's top 10 there is there because most people are watching it. It's based on purely numbers, volume. You know, what you're talking about is is qualitative research, talking to an individual, but you need to combine it with quantitative research, which is looking at a large number of people and netflix now offers that opportunity so you can look at box office mojo what is making money at the box office and you can look at netflix top 10 what is trending and getting viewed mostly in the pay television svod world right and those two things combined if you monitor them for a month will tell you what people want to watch and yeah. that's what you should be making develop something in line with those titles you see in the top 10 on the box office and in the top 10 on Netflix. And if you say, ah, people, ah, no, man, they're going to love this. They just don't know yet. Well, the risk is on you. Then you're not going to get a business person to take that risk with you if you haven't done anything before.
0: I do well when box office used to release because I haven't. I only started releasing again because of because of COVID. But I I studied uh, I study every because they come out every Monday the box office figures for cinema. It's actually right. quite fascinating. The more you read them, the more you also understand that even South African films perform, genre-wise, perform almost identical to their um, international counterparts. 100%.
1: 100%. 100%, Actually better. Actually, on average, they perform better. So if you compare genre for genre, South African films do better in the local box office than international equivalents of the same genre.
0: Yes, um, and that's, that's something which I've always found extremely fascinating, and which is why sometimes I kind of get very um, irritated when I see the discourse that we do have around African film because we compare films of a specific like, we, c- we compare apples to oranges or apples to mangoes.
1: Thank you. And
0: cause within the st- case studies, I spoke about this yesterday with Showmax. Five Fingers for Marseille grossed, I think, 1.7 million at the box office. But if you look at a film like True Grit, which was an Oscar film, an Oscar-winning Western film, that grossed 1.5 million at the box office thank you thank you you nailed it <laughs> you
1: Second look at
0: some, <laughs> you look at something like kalushi 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 was the best-selling biopic at the local box office that year well and
1: done
0: biggest came out in the same year but it was being compared to black panther which was not only an action film but it was an action family first black comic co-widry. book
1: based it's based on yes. a character that was written uh, 40 years ago and built an audience over four decades eh?
0: yeah so so a lot of the a lot of the discourse which is also why I wanted to what, part of what I wanted to have within this um, this podcast is to really kind of explore not just to kind of see what the problems are but to kind of hopefully start to, to get a better understanding of how to look at our industry going forth and understanding But before we, because I can see we only have about 10 minutes left of the... But I think there's
1: there's one very important point on what you said. When you look at Kalushi, which I think is 3 point something million at the box office, and you look at Five Fingers, 1.7 million, they did better than their counterparts. But you can't then make those films for a budget of 30 million rand. You have to be realistic and say, if that's what they're making and they're performing well, but that's what our market is worth, then you have to make sure your budget is realistic in line that you can make profits based on those box office numbers. And remember, you take home about 35% to 40% of whatever the box office number is. So if you see 3 million there, you must know the producers got 1 million. So it's, 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 you're saying it's 40%? It's 30 to 40 depending on, you know, uh, the, the deals and the, the, the box office number itself. The higher it goes, because the PA has to come off. And the PA is usually a fixed number. And that's between 500,000 and 1.5 million is just the print and advertising. So that has to come off the top. And then the cinemas take 40%. And then you're left with, uh, with the balance minus the PA. So on average, let's say a third goes back to the producers. Rough and then to my
0: understanding every then there are milestones in which um if you reach a specific muscle you get more percentages like if it gets to like five million and
1: correct to... exactly the higher it is the more they'll
0: be taking home basically so now african film for those of you who don't know did start off as a movie club mm-hmm. online film club we do want to keep that specific element of that within this specific podcast so i want to know from you what is your current favorite african film
1: and why I think I think I would say so. The winter to my skin is the current African film that just did the most for me personally as an audience member, and that I enjoyed the most, and that was you know an experiential pleasure to watch, uh, and it was like a ride. So I enjoyed that film extremely, but I know it's a very tough sell. It's not a film that's (laughs) going to make a lot of money. As a sales agent, I I I would say whoa. Uh, but but as an audience member... As Pascal. Yeah, that, as, yeah, Pascal. As, as Pascal, that's my favorite film, I would say. That, um,
0: if you haven't watched that film, please do go and watch that film. The first time I watched it was actually in preparation for African film because it was the first movie we did for African film. It's very hard for to get me to react when I'm watching something by myself, and I was jumping up and down, like almost every... like The, the, the yeah. way it's directed, and what I love about it is that it is... Not It's not a silent film, but it's pretty much a silent film. But There's no dialogue. The There's no the...
1: dialogue critical to the film. There's actually no dialogue that is critical to the plot or the film itself. It's all background dialogue, but mostly there is no dialogue at all.
0: And the action that happens within it still sells it, and you feel like you're in this spaghetti western mixed with storytelling and understanding a little bit of african history so so the winter to my skin is a brilliant film which you should absolutely it's, a, it's,
1: a, a it's <laughs> an ama- it's an amazing piece and I, I, I still for me it's my favorite film by Jamil. and i think it just showed like the insanely raw talent that he has as a director you know is in that film because it's a cinematic masterpiece it's it's a cinematic <laughs> film it is it's just it's cinematic uh roller coaster ride unbelievable Tell you that about that film that amazed me you know beyond like watching it as an audience it was great but also as a filmmaker what amazed me is that every scene in that movie builds up to a point and I feel this is fully intentional about you it builds to a point where you expect somebody's gonna say something so the scene starts out quite, and nobody's talking and it makes sense and then things happen and you, it's like a, as somebody's about to have to say something now <laughs> yeah. the scene ends and the next scene starts <laughs> And it go and it builds again, and it's like this fun. That's why it's like your heart just keeps going up, and you <laughs> up and then and it starts to get so That's yeah. you what know, I love about that song.
0: The tension, the tension, the tension building—it it is, it is, it is. is a masterclass. It is one of my, it is one of my favorite African films. Uh, it will probably uh, come back onto my top. It was at the start of Afri- uh, at the start of the the club. It was my favorite, which is why I started with it. Um, and then moving forward, where do you think um, to kind of close off? It's two questions: where uh, Where do you think the future of African film is? And where does independence lie within that? Um, and where does independent ownership lie within that? And then also after that, you can then if people want to know more about um, AA Entertainment and OU, where can, where, where can they um, understand?
1: I think that if you look at most industries in the world, and I know people love to compare us to Nollywood and say, look at Nollywood. But to be honest with you, Nollywood is com- is an industry completely owned by the distributors. And the producers are not empowered at all. They are at the whims of the distributors. If you look at industries where producers and directors um, and actors as well have have been empowered enough to drive the narrative of that industry to a degree and pioneer new ways for an industry. It's basically where these producers, directors and actors and, and the rest of the creative talent make things that work in a market build capacity especially financial capacity right if you want to make something new that nobody's seen before that you believe is going to blow everybody away you need the resources to do it without anybody else believing in it that's the that's the fact of the matter and to do that you need to make a couple of things first that give you the capacity and the resource to do that in other words the money you got to make some stuff for money make the money and then say for the next two years I don't need to earn money and I can drive this project Right out into the market and see if it works and be able to fail and go back to making stuff for money And then try again or succeed, but I think whoever does that first will be the ones breaking into the market and and I think it's companies like Gambit and DePrenta that have been doing Netflix Originals. They've been making stuff that has a market, succeeding in it, and they now are in a position to be able to develop the stuff they love and either get it out through these partnerships with Netflix or the likes or independently finance something because people will take a risk on them. People will believe in you if you've had success. That's just how life is, right? If you've won the last tennis five tennis championships, People are gonna bet on you to win the next one. But if you come out and say, I've got a new way of playing tennis, I'm gonna beat everybody, invest in me. They'll say, let's see it, you know, let's see it in action kind of So I think it's gonna be those that manage to make stuff for the market, Build financial capacity and resources and then do something new and create new markets, right? Because the other thing we need, though, for that to happen, I think, is to have a market in Africa. Not a box office in South Africa where you can make 15 million Rand at the top end on rom-com, you know what I mean? And make one to three million Rand on average on everything else. That's not a market that's gonna create studios. You know, we need like African studios, right? We need people that become studios. Like the Tyler Perry, you know? Tyler Perry started out with his own little movie, uh, which he acted in, directed, produced, and went on to film festivals. Plays festival before circus. that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, and, it was plays, and then he did movies from his plays. So the, so even his movies had a built in audience that people knew that they're going to go watch that film because they loved his plays so much.
1: That's it. And you know, whether you like Tyler Perry's films or not, he Black Panther was shot in his studios in Atlanta, right? And so, if you know, look at that model and see how he did it. And then you can always plan your own trajectory of how you would then do it once you're in that position that you can finance your own films and you you know Tyler Perry got a deal with, with Lionsgate and so he made all these you know comedy slapstick films but then he made some serious dramas that he was passionate about that didn't do as much at the box office but Lionsgate still distributed them because he had a deal with them and a partnership so you gotta get into the position where you can have these partnerships in distribution and financing to be able to make your passion projects but don't start with your passion project you're just gonna get very frustrated you're gonna make it on a very small scale and then it's got an even lesser chance of yielding the success that you want. And lastly, to get in touch with us, our website is www.aa-entertain.com and my email is pascal at the same thing, aaa-entertain.com dot com. You know, you can go online, look at the type of films on our website that we represent and sell. If your film looks like one of them, more chance that we're going to come on board of your project. If your film looks nothing like what's on our website, then unlikely that we will Come on board. That's the reality, you know. But once we're working with producers and we've sold their film successfully, then we are with them for life, you know. Our, we try to have partnerships for life with the with the producers, and the filmmakers that we work with, because you know, once you know somebody and you're familiar. You want to carry on working with them. So it's all about creating that relationship, but come with a a, a commercial proposition to start with.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom. This has been a very insightful, just I'm sure for the audience, but even just for me in terms of also understanding a little bit more because sales also seems to be, sales and distribution, I think seems to be one of the areas where we don't talk about enough or we don't have enough information on to be able to then make wiser decisions about our relationships as filmmakers with film so thank you very much for this piece um for for your time for taking for taking the time to do this it is highly appreciated thank you
1: and ditto thank you for your time for doing this and facilitating it and you know and enabling the information to get out there because it's difficult for us you know to to speak to enough people but thank you for making a platform that we can share this and that people can um hopefully take away some of uh, the understanding and the knowledge from this and for setting it up and making the effort really thank you very much man
0: and that was the 10th episode with special guest Pascal Schmidt. Thank you so much for listening. As mentioned before, the African Film Podcast is made by Enraptured Odyssey, but I'd just like to take some time to acknowledge some of the people who were integral in the making of this episode, including our co-producer Kibare Wanjiguna, our voiceover artist Nomava Kibare, as well as the music composer Katlejo Doshi Tema. We'd also like to acknowledge our sponsors who made this episode possible, the Broadcast Showcase and the NFVF. If you are an aspiring filmmaker or are within the industry, I do urge you to check out the NFVF's newsletters and follow them on their social pages to get more information surrounding what is happening within the South African film and television industry. And finally, if you'd like to know more about the African Film Podcast, you can check us both out on our social media platforms, which is at African film which is Afriquan Film both on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can also check out the website which has the full episode notes from each of the episodes which includes what the film recommendations were the credit list and all that important information including the audio transcripts for these episodes so if you go to enraptured.africa and then go to the African Film section you'll be able to find all that additional information which may not be in the information on a whatever streaming platform you're listening to.